Many of the clients I defended are now the people I train and consult. The transfer got me out of the realm of meeting these folks in the bottom of the ninth inning, when they hit trial, to reaching them in the first inning. Typical examples are as the student becomes isolated, becomes withdrawn, and when they do become vocal, they become very specific, but it's about what they want to do. Hello, and welcome to this episode of Call Your Broker, where we help to educate business owners, public officials, organization leaders, and consumers on all things insurance and risk management. This is Matthew Strzok of Treadstone Risk Management. Today, we gave Giovanni and John the day off, so let's get into it. This episode focuses on the risk management surrounding mass shootings, and we're lucky to be joined today by John Moore. John's joining us from Response Law. Uh, and response law uh, is, and you can give me a little bit of a background. You're you're kind of a um, like a law enforcement or security consulting firm, is that right? Well, yes, uh, in a great sense, we are. We're a national legal trainer and consultant for um, schools, police departments, and first responder agencies. And our niche is that anything all of those good folks do on the operational side, um, the tactical side we give them instruction on the legal side. Okay. What are their boundaries? Who's in charge? When and why? Here's the right way to do it. Awesome. From a legal perspective. And so um, just kind of a little background on, I guess it goes hand in hand with yourself as well. You you have a law enforcement background, right? Just let us know a little bit of, uh, you know, kind of where you came from professionally. Sure. Actually, not a law enforcement background, but a... Um, uh, EMS water rescue background. Oh, that's right. And yes. Incident command background, uh, which has all been volunteer for me. And of course, I'm an old man now. So <laughs> I've been doing that for uh, 40 plus years. Age is just a number, John. Yeah, how you just feel. a number. <laughs> but I've been doing that for 40 plus years here in New Jersey and specifically here in Monmouth County. I'm born and raised here. Oh, wow. Awesome. Yeah. It's uh, so my father was a police officer for 27 years. My mother uh, worked in EMS. Um, okay. out, out of Essex County in, in Roseland, where I grew up. So I have a, a, a big appreciation for, you know, first responders and uh, emergency care service. Um, so response law as an entity, when did it start? Mm-hmm. Uh, and where are you located out of in terms of the area that you service? Sure. Um, we started, actually, this is our 22nd year in business. Oh, wow. Um, I was a uh, insurance defense litigator in Philadelphia for 18 years, and many of the clients I defended are now the people I train and consult. That's interesting. Yes. <laughs> okay. So the transfer got me out of the realm of meeting these folks in the bottom of the ninth inning. Yep. Uh, time, you know, when they hit trial yes. to reaching them in the first inning. Yeah, that's nice. Uh, You're not uh, cleaning up messes anymore. You're trying to prevent them, right? Exactly. Yep. We're doing fast track education while we're trying to defend people who, for the most part, got sued for doing the right thing. Right, right, right. So it was a great opportunity for me, and I've never looked back. Uh, awesome. Still happily doing it after 22 years. That's awesome. So uh, the reason why we invited you today specifically was to kind of talk about the um, the risk management and kind of some of the circumstances surrounding mass shootings and these public shooting kind of events. Um, and it's, you know, the media attention has been obviously off the charts. There are also, um, you know, just kind of uh, gruesome events that – garner a ton of emotional uh, response to them, very guttural. Um, so in, in, 
in your estimation, or, or just really shortly, is there any kind of magic bullet to stopping these things, you know, in terms of a best practice? Or are these a lot more complicated situations than a lot of the media would have you think they are? Sure. And, and to those two questions, the first question, the short answer is no. There's, there's no magic answer. Mm-hmm. Um, to the second part of your question, it's not complicated, but it is multifaceted. Okay. Uh, it's a multifaceted approach. And although this is going to sound uh, self-serving, it starts with three key things, training, mm-hmm. practice, mm-hmm. and awareness. Okay. And not necessarily in that order. Normally, the order we do is awareness, then we do the training, and then the schools have to put it into practice. Okay. Knowing that in reality, we will never be able to stop school shootings per se, mm-hmm. but we can greatly reduce the risk. Right. And the focus of those trainings are incorporating lessons learned, not so much from shootings that occurred, but from shootings that were thwarted. Okay. Yeah. How did they stop them? How did they do that? Where where was the information coming from, which is not being publicized? Yeah, no, I, that was going to be my next point is, you know, we, we hear about the the actual, um, you know, events that did take place and, and, you know, did kind of cause some of this fallout. What we don't hear about is those situations where, you know, law enforcement or the, the risk management process in place actually stopped those from happening um, or – you know, thwarted them kind of, you know, in the beginning throws as opposed to spiraling, spiraling out of control. Absolutely. Yeah. So um, I think the, the the first thing that most that come to people's minds when they think about these events is it's the media attention, also the, the kind of the, the political influences. Everyone talks about gun control. Is gun control going to be uh, the thing that dramatically limits these events from happening? In your estimation is is that correct? I mean, does that argument hold water, or is it just kind of maybe some component of the overall answer? And, and the last part of your question is part of the answer. Okay. The problem I have seen in this country is that if you approach gun control as a light switch issue, yes, it will stop the shootings, or no, it will not. Mm. We'll never solve anything. Right. If you're doing diligent background checks and you're creating a system whereby you are reducing the risk of semi-automatic weapons falling into the hands of the people with evil intent, Mm -hmm. then that's a good part of gun control that goes a long way in reducing the risk. Well-targeted, yep, yeah. But it's a piece of the pie. Mm -hmm. And the other pieces of the pie are mental health, Mm -hmm. not only mental health evaluation, but there's a disconnect between mental health and law enforcement. Mm. Law enforcement is sent to a home the 17-year-old boy is out of control, but he hasn't committed a crime. Mm-hmm. Law enforcement needs the tools and the connection with mental health to say, you're not under arrest. Right. You need help. Right, right. And that's not law enforcement's burden alone, but that's a piece of the pie mm-hmm. um, for that. Parental involvement. The family structures have changed tremendously. Yep. Many of these kids come from homes where violence is normal. Mm. And in their mind, it's a normal way to solve the problem. Mm -hmm. Controlling access to video games. Another light switch approach that doesn't work. Well, video games cause active shooters. If you do that in a yes or no, you're going to fail. Right, right. Does it influence and help that person the wrong way? Mm -hmm. Where they develop an inability to distinguish between fantasy and reality. Mm. 
and that is also a piece of the pie. So to the point of the, the video game discussion, um, in a lot, of games, a lot of cases, like you said, it's the individual uh, living out the fantasy, right? But the fantasy didn't happen because of the video game. The fantasy grew before the video game was the outlet. Is that right? And it's never, it's never really alone. It's it's normally comes with uh, the exposure to a child who already has behavior problems, mm -hmm. who already has been exposed to violence, who already may have a mental health issue that has been not addressed. Right. So uh, that kind of leads us into our next question here is uh, in terms of the profile of someone who ends up perpetrating these types of events. Is there a, a common profile that they all fit? Are there common elements to the profile, but, you know, some unique characteristics as well? How does that kind of hash out? Well, you know, the FBI and, and the Behavioral Analysis Unit in Quantico, Virginia, they're the experts on it. Sure. I'm not, but I've learned a lot from them. And I know, and, and this is my view, that when you start to use the word profile, Mm -hmm. It's a dangerous term right. because you create a box. Mm. And then once you have the box, your question is, does this student, does this employee fit the box? Right, right. And that's a yes or no. Mm -hmm. So I stay away from profile. Mm -hmm. We are actually now, believe it or not, and this is where it's come to in this day and age, we're actually sitting with child study teams in the elementary school level. That's interesting. Okay. Long-term preventive maintenance to say, yes. Most of the active shooters are white males, mm -hmm. are in their teens to early 20s. However, that's not, that's not the end all. Right. What we want you to look for, and this comes from the mental health professionals in all the after action studies of all the shootings, we want you to look for what we call trends mm -hmm. without saying they fit the box or not. Right, right. And some of the key factors in those in that trend uh, are those are those trends are uh, is the student appear to be brittle, mm -hmm. meaning do are they showing a pattern of having abnormal reactions to normal events? Mm. That doesn't mean they're an active shooter. It raises the vigilance. So, can you just give me an example of that? I mean, uh, what a abnormal reaction would be in terms of you know something that you or I might consider just kind of commonplace throughout our sure, day. Sure, and I don't want to name the state because it'll seem like I'm picking on them, but one of the shootings that occurred in the after-action investigation, which are extremely thorough, they interviewed all of the workers in the school building post-shooting. Mm -hmm. One of the cafeteria workers said, I remember that kid. Mm -hmm. Every day, he took it. And the investigator said, what do you mean? He took the abuse. He took the bullying. Mm -hmm. His family was mocked. He was stoic. He turned the other cheek. He walked away. Mm -hmm. But I noticed one day when he went to sit down in an empty chair in the cafeteria and the girl across from him asked him to move over one seat because her friend was coming, he went ballistic, mm -hmm. nearly to the point of being violent. Yep. We all lose our cool. Mm -hmm. But when their pattern develops of that abnormal reaction to a normal event, that raises the bar, right. which means intervention, not just observation. Right. And so um, to, to that point, are there any other, um, you know, kind of warning signs that go into that behavioral component that, I mean, look, in this day and age, especially being located in New Jersey, with the anti-bullying laws as strict as they are, um, and probably poised to even get a little bit more strict, 
uh, we almost assume that you know the school district is omniscient, which is not the case. I mean, right. You know, and nor will they ever be. Um, but a lot of what they have to go off of is just what they see on a daily basis. So in terms of those you know extreme reactions, is it just those extreme reactions, or in the past have we also seen some of these? mass shooters not necessarily have those outbursts in public but have other behavioral uh you know red flags that might have come up or at least like you said kind of uh established a trend in which they were going sure it's usually a combination of factors and this is not an all-inclusive answer but typical examples are as the student becomes isolated becomes withdrawn and when they do become vocal uh, they become very specific, but it's about what they want to do right. to solve the problem. And active shooters rarely warn their targets or threaten their targets, mm-hmm. but they often share very specific information with other people. Right, right. So our, our trainings are now focusing on putting students, I just had 500 students in an assembly hall, mm-hmm trying to get them to understand why it's important to share the information, not to report a crime, Mm -hmm. not to report a threat, not to turn your friend in, but to get them help. Right. And I think the the phrase I think that I've heard you use a number of times is you're not necessarily reporting someone because you think they've done something bad or they're going to do something bad. You say, I'm concerned, right? Exactly. Do I have a concern? Yeah. And uh, I'll give you a quick example. We taught child predator signs and symptoms Mm -hmm. to students and staff in a high school. And one of the signs and symptoms of a child predator, because they like to observe, as do active shooters, Mm -hmm. without being challenged, Mm -hmm. is to park their car near a school zone where they have a direct line of sight of the school. They put the hood up on their car as if they're disabled. Mm -hmm. We asked the students in particular, now that you know that, if you drove into the parking lot as a senior in high school mm-hmm. and and got out of your car and saw somebody with their hood up, would you call the police because you thought they were a child predator? Nobody's hand went up. Mm-hmm. I said, would you call the police if you thought the guy was broken down and needed help? And they all raised their hand. Yeah, yeah. So we're pushing kids through the help door, not the report door. Because okay. kids shut down. They don't want to be snitches. Well, yeah, they, I, you know, and they all face these uh, strong cultural or, or local cultural, um, you know, kind of uh, issues on every single day as whether or not they're not going to be accepted, um, whether they're going to be looked at, like you said, as a, as a rat or a snitch. Um, but I think the, the message has to hit home that in some cases, you know, you're, you're actually, you might end up finding help for someone who might not necessarily be headed down the road of a mass shooting, but might be headed down the road of, you know, uh, suicide or some other kind of, you know, acting out type behavior that's dangerous, right? Exactly. And, and when you talk to students, we learn so much from them. They look at a threatening text, I'm going to blow up the school. Mm-hmm. An adult looks at that and says, I need to call the police. I need to notify the FBI. If you see something, say something. Kids don't think that new. I, I think that's a good tact because um, also in some of the, the more adult cases, right? So um, was it the, the shooting out in San Bernardino? I think there were a number of, what, neighbors that essentially they took note of some of those red flags. Um, but they didn't want to be the person that called foul when, you know, maybe they were wrong. Maybe it was just someone who liked to move stuff around in their garage late at night and they just so happened to have a bunch of, you know, big boxes and stuff like that uh, that looked like they were carrying some, uh, you know, munitions or something like that, right? It's so interesting you say, uh, talk about that case because 
when we do our trainings, whether it's the staff in the school, it's employees at a workplace, or it's the students, mm -hmm. they all have four major reasons why they won't pick up the phone and call 911. One, they don't want to be wrong. Right, yep. Two, they don't want to violate the confidentiality or privacy of that person. Mm -hmm. Three, they don't want to look as though they're being discriminatory. discriminatory. Mm -hmm. And four, they're afraid of retaliation. Mm -hmm. So taking the San Bernardino case, that one of the neighbors I gave a lot of points to for being courageous. Mm -hmm. She said, I should have called 911. Yeah, yeah. I should have called 911. I saw what they were doing. Honest answer. I was afraid to call because they were Muslim. Mm. So in our trainings, when we get to the discrimination piece, we tell students and staff, and we walk them through it, forget what they look like, mm -hmm. forget what their religion is, mm -hmm. focus on what's their activity, what's their behavior, what are they wearing, and what are they carrying, right. and does that concern you? Right. And they all raised their hands saying they had no problem reporting that. Mm. Don't be intimidated by that. Respond to it and say, well, I don't know if it's an emergency. Mm -hmm. That's up to you. Right. But here's what I saw. Here's what I heard. Here's what I smelled. Okay. Um, and I'm giving you that information. The nice thing about that approach is 911 operators are now attuned to saying, okay, I have priorities here. Mm -hmm. Are they near a school? Mm -hmm. Are they wearing bulky clothing? All right. Are they dropping their hands to a certain position at their waist or down at their ankles? Right. What is their behavior? So they're listening to that because most people call 911 because they don't know if it's an emergency. Right, right. Yeah. You know, fires and heart attacks and bank robberies are easy. Yeah. But, the, hey, there's a guy standing outside the school fence, been there for 20 minutes. Yeah. A lot of people don't want to call that in. Yeah. And I think that's... Uh that also sets the precedent for how the whole interaction happens after that point, right? Sure. So you're now relying, I mean, the person who's making the call into the police department or into the 911 operator, they're not talking directly with the officers or the first responders that are going to be the first on site. They're talking through someone, right? Yes. And so that person as a gatekeeper, I, I think... And again, it's, it factors into that unconscious, I don't want to be wrong. Like, I, I don't want to downplay something that ends up becoming a big issue. Yeah. But I think in a lot of these cases, or if you even look at some of the um, some of the, the shootings of, of, you know, black Americans that have happened, there's an escalation that happens before the first physical interaction actually happens. Mm -hmm. And so I think that's a, a good point where it's like a balancing act, right? You, you want to get the appropriate information so that you can give the appropriate response to whoever's going to be deployed, right? Correct. And it, it comes down to training. It comes down to training the public, training coworkers. Here's what you need to worry about. This is what you need to report. Trust your instincts. But the big message we give the kids, uh, students and staff and, and, and workers in the workplace is you have to stop trying to figure it out mm. because TV law, Mm -hmm. is what controls them. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and the TV law is all about crimes. crimes. Yes. There's the crime. Try to solve the crime. And we, including me, sit there for hours at the beginning of the show trying to figure out the end of the show. Yeah, right. Yeah. So we tell them, don't try to figure it out. Mm -hmm. Don't try to figure out if it's a crime and don't wait. Right. Hand over the information. Going back to the child predator with the hood up in their car, we asked all the students alone, that day, what does the police officer who responds to that, a possible disabled vehicle, mm -hmm. what's the first thing the officer does before they get out of the car? Now, we asked the kids this, mm -hmm. and they said, 
he runs the plate. Mm. Yeah. They knew that. They know that, yeah. And I stopped them and I said, that's because it's his job to well, figure it out. Right, Not right. Not yours. Yes, no, that's Call a, because they need help. That's that's a, a really good point. And again, that, that goes back to also that unconscious bias thing, right? Yes. You know, just because someone has a certain look or is or is doing something that seems strange to you, right. um, you're not the judge, jury, and executioner, right? No. Um, and that's why we employ people that, that are supposed to um, be able to discern that information or investigate it, which is a, a really good point. Uh, I want to transition a little bit before we get into some kind of best practices in terms of the preventative piece. Mm -hmm. There is one question that I've seen some rumblings about, and I just wanted to see if you had an opinion on it or not. It's the the link of um, antidepressants, antipsychotic drugs, or mood-altering drugs in relation to a lot of these events. Have you seen any kind of trend as it associates, you know, with those kind of events, um, or is it from your perspective, just something that's kind of a, a, a maybe maybe a contributing factor, maybe it's not. Um, it's more so the the behavioral piece that's really kind of concerning to you. Well, if you look at within the last month, some of the uh, violent acts that have occurred, mm -hmm. I will venture to say a majority of them had drugs as a piece of the pie. Okay, whether they were. Uh, on the influence of prescription drugs because they had too much in their system. Mm -hmm. uh, they were on illegal drugs, cocaine. Drugs are a very noticeable piece of the pie. Okay. So best practices in the, in the work uh, environment is drug testing, mm -hmm. drug mm -hmm. awareness. Yep. Uh, in the school environment, you're searching. Mm -hmm. And as you know, Matt, we have preached for a long time, you're not searching to find a crime. Right. You're not searching to suspend or expel. That might be the result of your efforts, but your intent is to protect them. Right. And your intent is to get those drugs away from them. Mm -hmm. So has it exacerbated uh, a, a, a situation that's made it more violent or perhaps put somebody over the edge to make the decision to commit violence? Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Yes. Okay. Um, but the, the key there is awareness and for schools... Uh, a very, a very robust search policy, mm. and for the workplace, a very robust drug awareness and testing policy. That's a, that's a good point, and I, I think also as a follow through to kind of like the parent dynamic as well, right? If you know that your child has had some issues with mental health, or if they have to be taking those medications, just double down on checking to make sure that you know they're not self medicating or they're not self pulling themselves off of it because. I have heard, and, and again, like I have a scientific background, but this is not within my expertise. You know, I've heard that the, the come down from that can also be problematic, not just, you Absolutely. know, when you're Absolutely. The withdrawal can be right. as dangerous as the high. Yes, yeah. And one of the good news things uh, that has developed now into a best practice is we're helping to train officers and school administrators in a two-prong approach. We want school administrators to make police officers aware mm -hmm of students who have specific medical conditions. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Not to violate HIPAA or get into their records, but to say what you're seeing looks abnormal to you, it's ab it's normal for them. Okay. So whether the, the child goes into diabetic shock, the child is autistic, mm -hmm. um, the child has some other cognitive problem, the officer is aware of it. Mm -hmm. Autism is huge. Right, right. Children on autism, when they panic, 
will repeat everything you tell them. Right, right. So if an officer says, you know, put your hands up, the child responds, put your hands up. Yeah. Well, to the officer, that sounds like a wise guy. Yeah, right, yeah. So one of the best practices now is connecting mental health with law enforcement. Mm. So they're, they're, they're giving a more educated response because you can't blame the officer. Yeah, they're well. going to act as an officer. Yeah, and I think um, some of that is on the um, the employer or or the you know the um, basically the the decision maker on site, right? Mm -hmm. And I think a lot of that is also a cultural change that has to happen. Right? Absolutely, um, there needs to be so much more coordination <clears throat> of you know mental health within the community because I think we've really kind of turned a blind eye to it in some cases. Uh, but I mean, that's a, a topic for another day. Sure. So let's move on to kind of the, the nuts and bolts here. So if I'm an employer, whether I'm, you know, I, I own a business with a number of employees, whether I have, um, you know, whether I'm the decision maker at a municipality or another a school district or another public entity, or even at a nonprofit, what are some of the best practices? And we talked a couple of them, you know, drug testing, and, and that also, you know, applies across a wide range of sure. risk management. Um, but are there other things in terms of maybe staging your environment that sure. can help or certain security protocols that can help either diffuse or mitigate the damage from these types of uh, events? Sure. And point number one is is uh, the best thing an employer can do is have a vulnerability assessment done of their facility okay. um, in terms of threats coming in from the outside. Mm. Uh, what, what, what's your point of access what kind of security check-in system do you have? And on the tail end of that, it's not only good to be able to put yourself in a position of safety at protecting yourself from those who are coming in the door, but how am I getting out if I have to get out? Right. So vulnerability assessment, number one, right. get the structure. And, and to that point, I'm, I'm sorry to cut you off, yeah, but sure. to that point, a lot of people – uh, you know, you, you see your environment, whether it's your work environment or your home environment every day, right? Mm -hmm. So there's almost like atrophy where you grow accustomed to seeing the same setup every day. Mm -hmm. And so to your point of bringing in someone to do a security profile of your location is great to have an outside set of eyes because that door that locks on one side and not the other or can be unlocked from either side is something that you just take for granted that that's the way the door is. Exactly. Um, whereas a security professional comes in and says, look, immediately you got to change that. It's going to look lock from one side or the other um, because you'll either stop egress or you'll allow access to someone, which is a, a good thought. Yeah. And, and the mission of vulnerability assessment, whether it be in a workplace or in a school, is to buy time. Yes. How can we slow them down? Yep. How can we delay it? I don't know how many schools I've been in now in the last two to three years that didn't have but now do have those uh, uh, those porticos, Yes. Uh, the entryways, yep. where you have a phone, you can pick it up, you're greeted, you're not ignored, but you're not in. Right, right. And it buys time. Oh, and, yeah. and law enforcement, not to speak for them, will be the first to say, we need you to buy time. Mm -hmm. We don't need necessarily to take this guy on, but buy the time. Oh, yeah. And, and I think there's also um – and we, we can get back to a couple more of your best practices. Sure. But I think there's also a misconception out there that all of these shootings, you know, the they fit the, the visual of the Columbine shooters or they fit the visual of, um, you know, the San Bernardino, Bernardino shooter where it's someone who's familiar who just walks in. I mean, the Columbine shooters were dressed in, you know, black or, or fatigue kind of wear. But it's someone that you've seen before that – 
you can kind of they can gain access on their own just because they've been in the location before but in many other cases it's someone from the outside who hasn't been involved and they come in dressed like what a UPS worker or a food service worker or something sure. like that and if you don't have a gatekeeper at the front keeping them and actually providing a filter and actively doing that yes. uh, that person can then gain access just because they have you know brown shorts and a t-shirt on or something like that a- right? exactly and and that it's a two-pronged approach in the best practice arena mm. one you have to have the physical structure to slow them down or stop them right cause the delay Two, the person behind the desk has to be trained right uh and one of the big faults because we're human and no other reason is we automatically dismiss what appears to be normal mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and all we want you to do is stop and pause and look is that the landscaper who's normally here um is that your mail guy right um it's summertime in the summertime we see a lot of people out there delivering mail who we don't know right nothing wrong with that yeah. but take note yeah so it, it still comes down to awareness training um, in addition to the physical facility. Okay, that's good. I Anything else in terms of the orientation of the actual environment that can also help in terms of, uh, you know, slowing down or stopping? Yeah, and I, I, we've done – I have a couple of tactical partners, active duty law enforcement, uh, and we do active shooter trainings for private companies, mm-hmm. for insurance carriers. Yep. Uh, we do them for uh, schools. Uh, and the first thing we focus on, they're all ready for the active shooter. And we say, well, we'll get to that. Right. But we're wanna, we want to talk about the day-to-day. Mm. And we take the phrase, which is a great phrase from the federal government that says, if you see something, say something. Mm-hmm. And we turn it into, if you see or hear something, tell someone. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. We have found in a lot of the shootings that were thwarted, especially in the workplace, in the after-action investigations, that the information from the source, the person who suspected something was wrong Mm -hmm. or that someone was off, went lateral. They told their coworker Mm. because they wanted affirmation. Do you think I should call our boss? Do you think I should call 911? And although we want them to call 911 or report to their supervisor, we never water that down, Mm -hmm. that's not always happening. That system alone doesn't work. Right. And in many of the shootings, they went lateral. Yeah. Student tells a student. Coworker tells a coworker. I have a concern. Mm-hmm. Jim has been off for the last week. Mm-hmm. This is what he's saying. This is what he's doing. He could care less that he might be fired, but he blew up at lunch because uh, he thought the, the sandwich was horrible. Yeah. Uh, you know, yeah. And, <laughs> yeah. and, and it's those types of things that we want them to – our first goal is you got to talk. Mm-hmm. You have to share the information, and you have to trust your instincts. Every one of those workers who went lateral, stage one, immediately went vertical yeah. because they got affirmed. Yeah. So that's the first thing we do. The second best practice is we have to teach them what to look for mm-hmm. um, because they, have, they know what's normal. They know what fits and doesn't fit. But we get into suspicious activity behavior recognition training. Mm-hmm. Here's the traits. Here's the here's the characteristics that are going to jump out at you. You don't have to look for them. And quite frankly, here's what's been tried before. Right, right. That's either worked or hasn't worked. So they have that awareness. That's good. Um, so th- if you get that, if you get that far, you've gone a long way. That's good. That's good. Uh, all right. So let's kind of transition to 
say you weren't able to thwart it. Um, there's actually an active event or, or attack that's happening. Um, I think, was it the FBI who put out the run, hide, fight video? Is that right? FBI, FEMA, Homeland Security okay. all have a, it, it comes down to the same core things. Okay. Run, hide, fight. Would you advise that most people watch that, um, you know, if they're in a group workplace uh, in order to kind of develop a base? And is there anything that you would change in terms of or add to that message that's included in that video? I, I've seen all the versions of Run, Hide, Fight, mm -hmm. and there's a lot of companies out there who do it and do it well. Mm -hmm. I think it's needed. I, mm -hmm. think it's, I think it's absolutely necessary, and it's a good tool. Uh, and if I'm, an, if I'm a private citizen, I'm walking down the street, I'm a, in a workplace, or I'm an administrator in a school, mm -hmm. watch it. Mm -hmm. Watch it. But it's not enough. Right. You have to put it into practice. You know, there's two things that make people freeze during a major violent event. Lack of muscle memory, mm -hmm. they freeze physically, and lack of mental memory. So if you don't put it into practice, it goes away. Mm -hmm. You sit down and watch any run, hide, fight video, even for 15 minutes, and that's all you do for the rest of your life, it's wonderful, but it's not going to be enough. Yeah, yeah. So we constantly preach tabletop drills tabletop exercises, physical exercises, where we actually have the students get out of their seats. Mm. Don't talk about barricading a room. Show them how. Yeah, yep. It keeps them occupied. It keeps them busy. One of the things I do, which I don't know if mental health professionals would agree with me or not, but I've been around in the EMS water rescue disaster community for 40-plus years. Mm. We're legally obligated to tell people in every training, and I agree with it, don't panic. Mm. First thing, yeah. first instruction, don't panic. Easier said than done. Right. <laughs> the reality is everybody panics. Right. I have found in, in studying all these events that people who are instructed not to panic view it as a rule to follow. Mm. And they violate it in the first three seconds. Yeah. So in their mind, they're saying, holy sugar, I just panicked. Yeah. I'm screwed now. Yeah. What yep. does that cause them to do? It raises the what? Panic level. Yep. You know, when I was back in the days of lifeguarding and water rescue, we tell people if you're caught in a rip current, don't panic. Mm -hmm. I never approached anybody caught in a rip current who waved me off and said, I read the brochure. Yeah, I'm good. I'm good. <laughs> They're trying to use your head as a flotation device. Yes. So the, we tell them, expect to panic. Mm -hmm. And one of the tools, and I take these from my tactical partners because I'm not the tactical expert, mm -hmm. is we want them on their cell phone. Once they're barricaded, once they're safe, if they're not running and they have to hide, mm -hmm. get on that phone. Mm -hmm. And you say, well, you know, you want the phone silenced, of course. But get on there not only to communicate after you've silenced the phone, mm -hmm. but people who panic, there's a physiological, a physiological reaction in all of the shootings. They get Muppet hands. Mm their fingers swell right, and they can't hit the buttons. So it keeps them occupied. So it's little nuances like that yeah. that we add that you get in the live training mm -hmm. that may not be in a, a standard run, hide, fight tape. That's, that's a good point. That's and really the last point. thing we tell them is, and, and run, hide, fight covers this, um, is we always have one way to get out of the building in yeah. our mind. Yeah. Oh, I know where it is. Closest door right yeah. there. Yeah. We don't think about option two and option three. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And, well, that's blocked or that's where the shooter is. You got to go another way. Yeah. And most of them have not thought about that. That's interesting. Uh, 
So I, I had a thought on a plane the other day, uh, or actually about a month back, and the thought was they always tell you to identify your closest exit, right? Yes. Well, what if that exit isn't there anymore, right? Exactly. <laughs> I, exactly. Maybe you should remember that there's a couple of exits that yes. you can take and one might be blocked. Yeah. Yes. yes. Um, okay, so really quickly to kind of sum up the best practices piece of this, um, do you have any pointers for – after an event like this, I mean, you know, knock on wood, you never want to be involved in um, something as, as horrific as one of these events. But if you do have an organization or your company or your, your public entity or, you know, whatnot is involved in an event like this, what are some of the best practices afterward to try and mitigate the, the post-event fallout? We, it's a great question. And we start recovery from the time you leave this very second you leave the building mm. while the situation may still be active because shock delays recovery mm -hmm. and shock uh, sort of uh, enhances denial mm. so in our and our tactical experts do this wonderfully because they've been there they know mm -hmm. and they tell uh, the folks in their training when you come out you're coming out with your hands up all right yep that may offend you. You see the tapes of the San Bernardino shooting, other shootings. People are coming out, they're complying, mm -hmm. but there's one commonly asked question asked a thousand times in response to the commands. Why? Right, yeah. Yep. Because in the mind of all these people coming out, it's not me. I'm glad I'm alive, mm -hmm. and I need to call my family, mm -hmm. and I need to go home. Yeah. The training of law enforcement is the polar opposite. They are trained, rightfully so, to assume that everyone is the shooter mm -hmm. until proven otherwise. Mm -hmm. So it's an indoctrination from the time they come out of the building. Expect to be delayed. Mm -hmm. Expect to be searched. Mm -hmm. Expect to be detained. You could be there for hours. Right. We're going to let you contact your family, but you're going to go to a staging area. Right. You're going to be delayed. Recovery starts then, and you say, well, why? what's that got to do with recovery? Because their expectations have not been diminished. Mm -hmm. They're prepared for that. Yep. And then the experts who do such a good job on this is the long-term recovery. Mm -hmm. And you know, between the recent events related to Sandy Hook and to Parkland, that long-term recovery is much longer than a year. Oh, yeah. Uh, it it goes, can go on for life. Oh, yeah, definitely. And, uh, and the experts say it. I'm not a mental health expert. I wouldn't claim to be. But constant communication mm. with the person who went through that, mm -hmm. constantly rechecking for counseling, mm -hmm. constantly looking for the warning signs yep. because PTSD can surface at any time. And, and I would say <clears throat> an important thing to um, – an important thing to, to think of from the insurance and risk management side or more the insurance side is the idea of crisis response, right? So um, with a situation like this, having crisis response counselors available either on site or immediately or as close after one of these events is a big deal because like you said, it starts that recovery process pretty quickly as opposed to – letting that fester, which can cause even worse issues. Exactly. And, yeah. and and I don't want to speak for crisis counselors, but and the state of New Jersey has a wonderful response team mm. uh, to, to do that. Uh, it, but they're there immediately mm -hmm. and they get the kids to talk. Yep. Yeah. You know, I, I, I've helped run a 200 member response team in here in Monmouth County for a long time. Mm. When we get a tragic event, as exhausted as our people are, as been out of shape as they might be about the tragedy that they had mm -hmm. just face is before you go home, 
We don't want you going home. Mm. Coming back two days later. Yeah. We're going to debrief you right now. Yes. It's going to be the first of many. Oh, yeah. But we want that initial plug pulled so they get that out. Oh, yeah. And I think, not speaking for health counselors, I think that's their goal. Yeah. See, you know, take the pressure out of the pressure cooker. And that's another good point, too, because a, a, a lot of people forget the fallout of the people that responded to the event as well. Absolutely. Right? They didn't experience it exactly the same way, but PTSD can can set in all the same. Um, and, you know, we, we did an episode with uh, Nate Reber from Prime Source Investigations, and he was talking about the rise of these mental health work, cl- work comp claims. And that really factors into that dynamic is if you do have one of these situations where um, there's a horrific event and you have employees or first responders getting there on site, a lot of times they're going to have some long-term mental um, you know, whether it's uh, symptoms or even full-on PTSD that can result from it, uh, even if they weren't there when the event first started. So that's all a really good point to, to keep in mind as well. All right. So uh, I really quickly here at the end, I just want to transition to something that might be a little bit more uh, lighthearted. Uh, <laughs> I, I like to ask as many of my guests as possible what they're currently reading, watching, listening to, and it can come from anywhere. It can be professional development, or it could just be for your own, you know, entertainment or uh, diversion from your day-to-day. So does anything come to mind in terms of what you're currently Sure, easily. I, I read happy novels. Yeah, <laughs> that's good. <laughs> yeah. I read happy novels because yeah. a lot of what I do is not happy news. Yeah. Um, I do that, but I also keep a close eye on the media pulse across the country okay. on, on things that get barely reported mm, mm. Uh, small events yeah um, I, I do a lot of research in that area because there's a lot of things that come up uh, and be, you know well the, there was no body count or the body count wasn't high or yeah. it was thwarted I look at those because there's lessons learned yeah things to do and we're at a critical time right now. You know, April is one of the most deadliest months of the school year. Oh, that's a good point. I forgot to ask about that. Usually, is it April? Which date is it? That's the 20th anniversary of Columbine is 20th of April. The 20th, right, yeah. And there will be a lot of members and a wonderful ceremony. Um, but in my world and in law enforcement world, we're keeping a close eye mm. um, because it's an iconic event mm-hmm. in the mind of someone planning to commit violence. Right. It has symbolism to it. Right. It has the hint of copycat. Mm. Uh, so or trying one upsmanship one as well, upsmanship. right? Exactly. Yeah. I can do better and let me make that anniversary something different. Right, right. And I'm not a you know me, I'm not a doomsayer, I'm not a negative guy, I don't preach fear. But it the reality is it's something that I have a passion for that we want to keep track of. Mm-hmm. And of course law enforcement keeps track of it. Sure. You know, it's 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 what they're concerned about. Yeah. Not that there's anything out there. Not that anything will happen. Not that there's some threat on the board that I'm aware of or anybody else is. Mm. It's just the fact that the date's coming. Period. Right. Yeah. And uh, it's the moment that you just completely write off that it'll never happen, that you're the most susceptible to the worst fallout from one of those events actually occurring. Exactly. Because uh, you get you get caught completely blindsided. Exactly. Um, so, John, I want to say thank you. I appreciate you taking the time. If anyone wants to learn more, I know we kind of painted in some broad strokes here. There's obviously some very kind of 
deep training that should result from this from anyone who listens to it and, and really wants to be prepared or better prepared in the future, where can they go to find out information about response law? Sure. They can just uh, Google uh, our website, mm-hmm. www.responselaw.com, okay. or they can email me. It's JL Moore, and there's one Owen Moore, at responselaw.com. All right. Fantastic. I appreciate it, John. It's Thank my you. pleasure. Thank you for having me. Yep. Thanks. Okay. And that's a wrap. Thank you for joining us on this episode of Call Your Broker. We hope you got something out of it. If you did, please, please, please hit the like button, subscribe, leave a comment or a review. If you have specific questions, you can always reach out to us directly at either treadstonerisk.com or lbanj.com. See you next time. And always, this is a reminder to call your broker. We'll take the-